Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, virtual edition. I'm joined by Chris Booth, and he's going to be introducing our new guest on this podcast. They have a new paper out. It's coming in the Lancet Oncology. Chris, friend of the show, Kingston, Ontario, Canada, professor of medicine. It's good to see you, my friend. Thanks, Vinay. Thanks for having us back. And it's uh, a great uh, pleasure and privilege to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Manju Sengar, join us. Um, I've known Manju for many years. She is a senior hematologist at the Tata Memorial Center in Mumbai. And I got to know Manju uh, through working very closely with her at the Credo Methods Workshop, where she's one of the organizers. This is a wonderful one-week uh, cancer research methodology workshop run by the National Cancer Grid. And Manju and I have had the opportunity to work on many projects and have served together at the WHO Essential Medicine List Cancer Medicine Working Group. Um, so thank you, Manju, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here and discussing our important paper. Thank you. And Vinay, Manju and I should tell you that your podcast and your writings are very popular amongst the trainees in the Indian cancer system as well. And I often encourage, I mean, I encourage trainees in every context um, to, to listen to the podcast, but I think especially in medical systems and health systems where critical appraisal has perhaps not been fully Absolutely. taught in training, I think your podcast has just a huge, huge role. And so, I mean, it's one of the reasons I keep listening to it. That's kind of you. Thank That's you. True. Why don't we get started by talking about like the, the origin story, Chris, you're good about origin stories like superheroes. How did you come to write this paper? All right, so here's the background. So um, the title of the paper, Access to Cancer Medicines Deemed Essential by Oncologists in 82 Countries, an International Cross-Sectional Survey. This is gonna be published uh, next week in the Lancet Oncology. It will probably be live by the time this podcast is released. And uh, certainly Manju and I were very excited to be a part of this team. I'll introduce the characters on the team in a moment, but sure, let's get to the backstory. Um, a number of us have been on the, uh, the WHO Essential Medicine List Cancer Working Group for a few years, and um, we're, we're an advisory group that provides input to the selection committee for the Essential Medicine List about which cancer medicines should be considered highest priority and therefore added to the EML. Um, and maybe in a moment, I'll ask Manju to you know, provide some insight about what the Essential Medicine List means uh, to different health systems worldwide. But suffice it to say that there's lots of discussions about which medicines should be added to this list. And as, as a group, we realized that creating a list of essential medicines is only the first step in ensuring access to important cancer medicines for patients globally. And we needed to move beyond um, a boardroom in Geneva 
with a number of experts and understand, are these medicines actually available on the front lines of clinical care worldwide? So we decided to launch this project. We called it the Desert Island Project, and I'll explain that in a moment, uh, really with two primary goals. The first was to ask oncologists on the front lines of care all over the world, what cancer medicines are the most important to you? And then we want to understand the extent to which those medicines may or may not be available. So I'll get to maybe some of the methods in a few minutes, but perhaps, uh, Manju, could you maybe share some thoughts as, an, as a hematologist uh, in the Indian cancer system and speaking more broadly, I guess, tell the listeners, what is the essential medicine list and what does it really mean? So uh, as you know, Chris mentioned that uh, we were part of the WHO essential medicine list for cancer working group. Uh, the sense of this entire exercise is that uh, once in two years, a list of new drugs or you know promising drugs are submitted to the uh, expert group, which is you know, uh, 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 the expert group has people across different regions of the world representing different practice scenarios, different economic scenarios. And this particular, you know, uh, exercise, which is conducted once in two years, uh, the expert group receives new drugs supported by the evidence. And this uh, expert group goes through this, you know, list or the new drugs which come in in terms of what is the magnitude of benefit uh, with this new anti-cancer drug, which is being proposed, what's the toxicity, what's the efficacy, and if in case it is included in AML list, what is its feasibility to be delivered across different uh, you know, parts of the world? Uh, so it's a very rigorous process through which this list is developed. The idea is that you know, uh, this list allows most countries, and especially this is true for the LMIC, to select drugs from this AML into their national procurement system so that you know patients can be given these drugs. There is less problem of you know, inaccessibility or non-affordability because having these drugs on EML allows you know, a price reduction in terms of you know, using the patient pool, a patent pool for reducing the price as well as competitive pricing when you are talking about two drugs with similar mechanism of action. So, in a sense, the AML provides a framework, a ready framework for the different governments to procure these drugs to ensure universal health care. So that's the basic aim for the essential medicine list uh, created by WHO. And this is uh, true for even cancer medicines. Thanks, Mandrew. I'll just build on a couple um, thoughts of that. And so uh, the, the EML really is, is there to serve all countries, but the reality is, is that many high-income countries already have their own independent process for health technology assessment. And so the EML, um, uh, you know, to be honest, has much less relevance in a place like the UK or Canada where, where we already have HTA processes in place. And so really it's used probably most broadly by health systems and ministries of health in low middle and upper middle income countries that might not yet have these processes in place. And as part of the WHO EML, there's an explicit acknowledgement that cost in itself should not be a barrier to listing a medicine, but you can imagine the debate around the table about the implications of adding some of these medicines that clearly a medicine with a tremendously large benefit cost will be um, considered perhaps less of a factor. But for some of these drugs that are, uh, you know, gray zone or perhaps modest benefit, these costs have to be uh, considered, whether explicitly or implicitly, because there's going to be trade-offs in many of these um, health systems. One of the things that EML did a couple of years ago, uh, and I think it led to the creation of our working group, was we provided input to the WHO about using value frameworks to help identify the highest priority medicines. And so, 
we did this, I think, about three years ago, and the recommendation of our group, and it was fully supported by the WHO EML, was to use the ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit scale as a screening tool. And uh, within our, our advice to the WHO was that in the palliative context, um, medicines should, uh, should score high on the ESMO scale to at least be discussed. And when they're being discussed, they should have real improvements in overall survival and quality of life. And the benchmark that we set informally was overall survival should improve by in the range of at least four to six months. And so that was not a firm guideline, but it certainly was kind of a framework to help the EML del deliberation. And so before we get to our study, just I guess the last comment would be from a practical point of view, how does this all work? The uh, essential medicine list is updated every two years. In fact, there will be an updated list uh, released, I think, in the next few weeks. Um, we serve as the cancer medicine working group. We provide advice to the expert committee. Um, and so we had a series of extensive meetings and deliberations over the winter and spring. As new medicines had been submitted, we reviewed the evidence, we discussed it at length, and then provide a recommendation to the expert committee. And those results and final listings will be announced very soon. So that happens uh, every two years. Um, so that's, I guess, some background to the essential medicine list and perhaps how the, uh, the, the story came to be. I guess my two questions are, in oncology right now, how many drugs are on the essential medicines list? And two, how many oncologists do they have helping them make these decisions? How many people are on your, your panel, Chris, Armanju? Yeah, great question. Um, I don't have the number in front of me. There's a lot of cancer medicines on the list. So there was a huge update down in 2015 because before then, generally just new cancer medicines were being added. But a number of um, you know, leaders in our field, uh, including Dr. Schulman and Dr. Trode and others, worked closely with the WHO to provide a big update. So in 2015, there was a lot of the older medicines were added to the list. There's many dozens of medicines. I many don't have dozens. a figure okay. in front of Okay, dozens. just some framework, yeah. The, um, and uh, the, uh, the, co the composition of the committee, man, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably about a dozen um, people. And it's uh, really quite well balanced. Uh, it's oncologists and methodologists from all um, different health systems, high income, uh, low middle and upper middle income countries, adult pediatric oncologists, uh, some people with expert expertise in health technology assessment and, uh, and the patient voice as well. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And the list is full of things that we're going to talk about, like regorafenib and Selenexer and Lonserve. Yeah, huh? let's, let's, we'll find out what's on this list. We'll find out what's on this list. Okay. So I'm very curious. So Why don't I get I to some of the methods? Tell me. And then I'll, yeah, I'll tell you some of the methods and then Manju okay. can maybe share some of the initial results and we can have a discussion. Um, okay. So uh, this was... Um, this came out of, this was an idea really came out by a number of us who've become close friends on the working group, kicking around ideas. And these are oncologists who work in very diverse settings from, you know, low income to upper middle income and high income countries. And uh, we came up out of the working group with the idea to do this project. We called it the Desert Island Project. And um, that's because the fundamental question we were going to ask is we wanted to know from oncologists which cancer medicines mattered the most to them. And so we framed this around the classic dinner party uh, conversation piece uh, that many of us have done before. If you were moving to a desert island, they could only bring three books. What would those books be? If you're going to a desert island, they could have dinner with one famous person and it couldn't be Benai Prasad, who would it be, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the, uh, the primary question on the survey was, something along the lines of, imagine your government has put you in charge of cancer care. Uh, you have been told to select cancer medicines which will be provided free of charge to your country. 
Assume that cost is not an issue and you can choose any cancer medicines you want, but you can only choose 10. Which 10 cancer medicines would you choose for your country to provide the greatest public health benefit? And so that was really the hypothetical scenario. Um, and so and I guess I just to, to acknowledge- that I, kind of, I, did, I just did the homework assignment last night and you're going to, at some point on this podcast, reveal if I did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will. We will. I think listeners might be surprised to know that Prasad didn't score quite as high as oh, one really? might have expected. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Oh, well, well, well. So um, just to acknowledge kind of the cast of characters uh, that were really um, integral in this. So uh, the study was led by my research fellow, Adam Funditis, who was also a fan of the show and a recent guest on the show. Um, Adam was unable to join us because he's just finished his research fellow. Fellowship. He's about to start a faculty job at the BC Cancer Agency. And between now and then, he's gone off in a very exotic place to go surfing. So he's unavailable. Um, life. Uh, obviously, Manju, Manju and I were, were part of the team. Dorothy Lombe uh, from Zambia. Uh, Wilma Hopman and Matt Jallin from Queens provided methodologic support. Michelle Gawali uh, from Kingston, known to many of your listeners. Character. And, and then we had a really strong um, list of uh, co-investigators from diverse backgrounds with excellent skill sets. Dario Trapani, Felipe Reutberg, um, Professor Elizabeth DeVries, who chairs um, the Cancer Medicine Working Group, uh, Lorenzo uh, Moha and Andre Albawi from the World Health Organization, and uh, my close friend and colleague Richard Sullivan uh, from the UK King's College London. So it was really it was a, a great team and a lot of fun. Um, so how do we do this? It was, uh, we've talked about this before, as many of my projects often are, this was scientifically simple, but logistically not simple. And so this essentially was a survey. It was an electronic survey we developed with our team. We piloted it on a number of individuals, and then it was distributed to oncologists um, worldwide to uh, over 80 countries, largely through their National Oncology Society. And so we asked that each country would send it through their association. If they either did not have an association or they were unable to do so, we had a friend or colleague in each country send it to their own informal network. So we used a snowball method to distribute the survey. The survey was in English. It took about 10 or 12 minutes to complete. There was questions about demographics, uh, clinical practice context. And then really the core question was uh, to select the 10 cancer medicines that were most important in your country. And then the second series of questions had to do with to what extent are those cancer medicines actually available on the ground? Um, so that's kind of a, I guess, a snapshot of, of the methods. And um, I'll let Dr. Sengar summarize the main results, but just to give listeners an idea of who responded. So we ended up with 948 participants. Um, about two thirds were from high income countries and one third were from low middle and upper middle income countries. Um, it was uh, about two thirds male. Uh, the mean age um, was in their forties uh, with about 10 or 12 years on average in clinical practice. 75% of respondents were medical oncologists. 17% uh, were clinical oncologists who practice both systemic therapy and radiotherapy and other physicians um, who prescribe systemic therapy made up the remainder. Um, about half of respondents worked exclusively in public healthcare systems. The other half worked either in private or a blended model. And again, that varied across income groups. So in low and middle income countries, we're uh, more likely to see individuals working in a blended um, model. Uh, most physicians practiced in an urban setting and treated predominantly solid tumors. They were based at hospitals. And again, when we looked at um, you know, what they, who they treated, 
uh, again, in high income countries, uh, you know, we, we live a life of luxury. We predominantly treat adults. We usually just treat one or two major cancer sites, whereas our colleagues in lower resource health systems, you know, I know this very well from having lived in India. They work three times as hard as us. They, some of them treat adults and kids. They treat many different cancers and um, they certainly have a very diverse uh, clinical practice. So that's a snapshot of kind of who the respondents were. And so I'll let uh, Manju tell our listeners about some of the important results. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so, uh, you know, so what we, uh, you know, started to look at whether what oncologists feel essential, are they truly represented on the WHO AML? And to our surprise, uh, nine, so we looked at the top 20 drugs which were selected by these oncologists and 19 out of those, you know, drugs are already present on the WHO AML. What is not there is osimertinib, so which was not there selected by the oncologist, but it wasn't present on the WHO AML list. And another interesting aspect was that 12 out of these top 20 drugs which were selected are the conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy, which are approved before the year 2000. Okay. And there were just four targeted therapies, two hormonal therapy agents, which were there, and uh, two immunotherapy, which was one, pembrolizumab and nivolumab. So this was the distribution. If you look at the you know drugs selected by the oncologist, tell me. And an important part, which was uh, you know noticeable, though that you know though the list matched quite uh, remarkably between the different uh, uh, you know whether we're talking about low middle income, upper middle income, or high income countries, but there were some differences. So if you look at drugs like venkristin, methotrexate, which were present in the low middle income countries but were not there in the high income countries group. Same way the drugs like pembrolizumab, and this is probably you know, a reflection of what they feel essential and what is accessible, was seen in the HIC list, but it wasn't there in the LMIC list. So the targeted therapy, which you know, uh, featured on the LMIC list was rituximab and trastuzumab, clearly indicating that the magnitude of benefit, which, was off which is offered by these two drugs, is simply uh, better than any other agents which were listed in our, uh, the entire list, which was sent across as part of survey. And that's why it was selected uh, in the LMICs. Okay. Osimertinib definitely figured on the upper middle income and the high income groups. But there was some similarity in terms of these lists. So drugs like doxorubicin, cisplatin, 5-FU, uh, uh, paclitaxel, they were commonly, uh, carboplatin, this, they were commonly seen on both the lists. So whether we talk about LMICs, upper middle income or high, middle, high income okay. countries, these drugs were seen across all the you know uh, uh, lists, so that was an important uh, revelation that you know uh, there are, there are uh, uh, you know sort of similar patterns with some differences between different oncologists from different countries how they select the drugs which are so called those drugs which you will carry to the desert island in case if you are you know <laughs> there so and you have yeah. to carry only 10 yeah <laughs> so far i think i'm i'm not so bad because i think i'm putting these on my so okay rituxin trastuzumab those are the okay. two no no wait ones. wait Prasad. wait we're gonna get to your test results in a moment i gotta build up to that <laughs> okay but okay so, so let's go okay, through the rest so of the list just to 
give listeners, uh, let, let's, let's talk specifically about a few of the drugs. So yeah. uh, overall, across all participants, these are the most common drugs in yes, rank order. Good. And it really, it makes sense. Doxorubicin Check. and cisplatin, about half of respondents chose those to be their highest medicines. And then we have paclitaxel, 45%, then pembrolizumab, 44%. We'll talk about that later. And then moving down the list, you know, these drugs all make sense. Trastuzumab, carboplatin, 5-FU, tamoxifen, cyclophosphamide, and capecitabine. So as Manju said, there was, number one, there was a lot of consistency between oncologists, regardless of where they worked. If you look at the top 20 most common drugs chosen, 15 of them were identical across the three different economic um, contexts. So there was a lot of uh, convergence, but really the vast majority of medicines were old, generic, inexpensive, cytotoxic chemotherapy and hormones. And generally, the drugs which featured prominently amongst the targeted and expensive new generation medicines are the ones that make sense, rituximab, trastuzumab, and then we start to see pembrolizumab. So I think really there, this was a pretty common sense list and it highlights that the medicines that people really want are largely medicines that have large benefits and most of these are old, inexpensive. A couple things, as Manju said, I mean, uh, you know, pembrolizumab did not really get high on the list from our colleagues in LMICs because I think they have much more pressing priorities about medicines to worry about. But uh, it was actually the most commonly selected medicine in high-income countries. 50% of people really? said they needed it on their desert island. This After is, this that, is, this the, is the power of advertisement. I mean, I think that's the power of advertisement. We're being pumped full of Pembro ads on the television, uh, even though I think the LMIC people are calling it right because strictly speaking, you know, Pembro has a small durable fraction in a couple malignancies. Other malignancies, I think the benefits are overstated, such as lung. Um, but uh, platinum doxyrubicin cure a lot of people. End of story. Yeah, you're right. And actually, just on that point, the high income countries, you know, rituximab, Manju use a lot of this stuff. This has a huge benefit in curative intent therapy. And we see that rituximab in high income countries was only chosen by 24% of respondents, yet Pembro was chosen by 50%. So there's, uh, there's certainly a, a disconnect there. Um, so we see some important differences across groups. So I think listeners want to hear how did Dr. Prasad do on his test? When we asked him, so first of all, okay. listeners should know that he was three days late. So if uh, if I was his professor, he would have failed. Um, but I'm very lenient because I'm Canadian, so I accepted his tardy response. But can Manju I say, to, in much, my defense on much, that, you know, the moment you become faculty, the due date is literally the minute before it's due. <laughs> all our slides are all always right. literally the minute before I go on stage is my slide due date. I don't care what they do to me. There we go. All right, go okay. through my list. So I'll, defend, oh, I'll defend where I'm different. I'll defend it. Go on. Okay. Well, Prasad, who's like a wizard with numbers and critical appraisal epidemiology, sent a list of 11 medicines. So his <laughs> counting's not so hot after all. I thought you'd give me a bonus. And, uh, <laughs> and actually, he did pretty well. So, uh, you know, on your list, you had all of the ones, uh, you know, cisplatin, docs, docetaxel, imatinib, pembro, 5-FU, rituximab, trastuzumab, you actually did very well. Um, on your top 10, you added oxaliplatin, uh, which was number 12 globally. You added bleomycin, that's probably from your uh, perspective clinically. Days. I was actually surprised that didn't make it on the list. But See, again, I, I thought about I lymphoma kind of testicle for bleo. Absolutely, absolutely. But one, one thing I wanna say, uh, the reason yeah, I use docetaxel, well. I use docetaxel, not paclitaxel, because of um, steroid premedication. That was my choice. There you go. And Saving then, money and side effects. And then I didn't do safe side of uh, Zalota slash 5FU. I just picked one. 
Very reasonable. Very reasonable. So I, I think you, we, 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 Manju and I have to confer afterwards, but you probably will pass. Might not be a gold Thanks, star, Dave. but I think you'll pass. Well, that's all it takes to become a doctor in this country. Pass. P equals MD. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no great. So I think, um, you know, so that was the results for the first part of the paper, which showed that what doctors want are drugs that have big benefits. They tend to be uh, old generic inexpensive medicines, the medicines that are kind of new and expensive, they make sense. They're the ones that make a big difference for our patients. So now we'll get to the second part of the paper. And this was, I think, the really provocative part that really is a call to arms for our community worldwide as oncologists. Um, Manju, why don't you walk us through some of these uh, key findings? And this, this relates to the question um, where we said, okay, now you've given us your top 10 medicines you want on your desert island. We'd like to know right now on the ground in your routine clinical practice, to what extent are these medicines available to your patients? So uh, the access was basically, uh, the questions were mainly based on the ESMO work where we wanted to look at what is the risk of substantial or catastrophic expenditure, you know, if one is trying to access these drugs across different countries. And we divided it into four categories. One, which is, you know, universally accessible without substantial out-of-pocket expenditure for more than 90% of the patients in their practice. The second was where it was accessible, but with significant out-of-pocket expenditure. So that means not talking about universal health coverage. And the third was, you know, where there was access, but at the risk of catastrophic expenditure. So where more than 50% of patients needed substantial uh, expenditure and there was risk of you know catastrophic health expenditure and the last one was basically the drug which was not available whether it's not you know regulatory approval is not available or the procurement issues are there so this is what we asked in terms of access and even for these drugs so we need to remember that we are talking about drugs which are conventional where you have a lot of generics available and the drugs which were approved before you know year 2000 is what we are talking about even for these drugs in the LMIC the risk of catastrophic expenditure was reported by almost 68% of the participants that even for accessing these drugs there is a very high chance of you know sig significant expenditure and therefore limiting the access uh, it was not so much for the upper middle income. It was roughly around 10%. And it wasn't there for most of the drugs when we are talking about high income countries, except for some drugs like Pembro and Osimartinib, there was you know chance of significant out-of-pocket expenditure. So that was reported by high income countries. Uh, surprisingly, few of the participants did report that even for the conventional drugs, conventional chemotherapy drugs, there were access issues even in the high-income countries. So that was from a you know fraction of the uh, participants from the high-income countries. So it just goes on to say that you know though these drugs are essential, we know that they are needed. Without them, we wouldn't be able to treat majority of the cancers. Some of them are highly curable. And these are the drugs which are there, available, approved for such a long period of time, but still they are not universally available. So that means there is an issue in terms of pricing, in terms of the access to the people who are residing in LMIC and, you know, which constitute just because of its sheer numbers, you know, they constitute a huge uh, fraction of patients with cancer if you look at globally. So this is something which we need to address. We need to, you know, so EML is good. It's putting the drugs in priority to make sure that there is universal health coverage, at least for these, uh, you know, few medicines which are there on EML. But we need to definitely look at some other steps, some better method to make sure that they get accessible and without the risk of, you know, 
having to spend too much and going below the line of poverty while uh, getting their cancer treated so this is something which we need to work upon in future so yeah that's that's about it yeah that's well put yeah so i mean as as manju said there's a striking you know dose response with the inability for patients to afford these medicines i mean when we asked um the doctors why is the medicine not available it was almost always because of affordability only in a few percentage of cases is it the drug just not available anywhere in the hospital okay. or in the country it's almost always driven by lack of affordability so just to give listeners some context so let's look at the most commonly selected medicines um doxorubicin and cisplatin uh again these these should really cost pennies or you know a few dollars per dose and in LMICs we see that only about one third uh, of respondents are able to universally access doxorubicin about one third of oncologists said that getting it will put their patient at risk of substantial out of pocket expenditures and again about one third between a quarter and a third of oncologists said that i can get this medicine for my patient but it's going to cause catastrophic expenditure and that means that you're spending more than 40% of your household expenses to get doxorubicin or cisplatin i mean this is really absolutely tragic and so you know, when we move over to upper middle income countries we can see somewhat of an attenuated effect we can see now doxorubicin is universally available free of charge for 88% of patients um and we can see that you know uh risk of catastrophic expenditure drops down to 2%. Um but even as Manju said you know even in high income countries when we look at dox and cisplatin about 10 or 15% of oncologists are still saying that uh just getting good old doxorubicin or cisplatin for a young man with testicular cancer will put their patient into significant financial duress. So mm-hmm. while this is largely uh, a crisis in low middle and upper middle income countries there are some takeaways here for high income countries as well but uh, again just kind of two more examples um than I you know tamoxifen again this should cost you know literally like pennies and uh we see in LMICs uh it's only universally available for 36% of patients uh and 20% of oncologists say that it'll cause catastrophic financial toxicity for for patients there likewise trastuzumab which is now you know biosimilar availability universally available for only 15% 15% and 2/3 of women will be at risk of catastrophic expenditure wow. to get this and as manju said if we look globally where is the burden of cancer coming it's in these emerging um uh cancer health systems and LMICs and UMICs so this is really a call to arms if we want to collectively reduce global suffering from cancer we need to think about how to facilitate access to these important medicines. Can I ask a question? I'm curious about there's you mentioned there's five drugs that the high income nation poll participants wanted to add to the list. One was osimertinib, um but the lower and middle income nations didn't pick these five. What were those five drugs? Osi was one. Yeah, let me see here. As Chris is searching, I just, you know, um so one is osimertinib another one is pembrolizumab and the nivolumab then you had some of the hormonal therapies like you know gosevelin and the abatirone so these are the drugs which are not picked up by the lmics so they didn't figure in the lmic list yeah that's exactly it so the, the umic selected uh, an lhrh agonist and abiraterone that was not on the lmic list and in the high income countries uh just looking quickly it looks like uh you know nivolumab and uh and osimertinib i say i guess my only thoughts there are um you know osimertinib is a good drug of course but it's non-curative and you know it it 
it still leaves many years of life on the table that are lost. And, um, you know, it only affects a small fraction of lung cancer patients. And so I guess I do understand that in a world without routine and easy access to EGFR testing, um, you know, it might be less of a priority. Pembro and Nevo, I think are like Coke and Pepsi. So if you get one, you know, you're fine with the other. Um, uh, in terms of uh, Gocerolin, is, is there thought because they want to they want to use an LHRH agonist oh, for both prostate and for ovarian and then give them uh, AI instead? I see. Well, for, uh, sorry, for breast. I mean, breast if you, cancer, yeah. and give them AI. I mean, that's a very marginal benefit over tamoxifen. I think you could skip that. Um, and yeah. uh, abiraterone, I think, you know, decent, decent drug. Should be cheap too. It's generic yeah. now. Yeah, I know, I know. And there's also dosing with, uh, you know, with food that could be uh, cost-saving. Don't you so bite your tongue. They, 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 the company was angry about that. <laughs> Empty stomach. Um, so I guess just a couple themes kind of to touch on in, in the remaining minutes we have. Uh, you know, the first is that, you know, this has big implications for most cancer patients worldwide. And um, it also, you know, we don't do a very good job as an oncology community talking with our patients or the public about magnitude of benefit of new therapies. And this is really problematic. So um, one of our colleagues from an LMIC was a study author um, said that, you know, it's very difficult for policymakers in the Ministry of Health to distinguish, you know, what's the difference here between pembrolizumab and tamoxifen. And there's always this gravitation towards the new shiny medicine. And you can imagine a scenario where someone might say, we don't want second rate care for the people of our country. We're going to choose the newest medicine and they choose to pay for something like pembrolizumab and then forego tamoxifen because it's an old cheap drug and maybe it's not as good. So we need to do a better job of conveying the absolute number of lives saved or years of life gained by these medicines. So I think that that's kind of an important consideration about how we talk about these issues. And then there's the whole bigger picture from a policy point of view, how can we make these medicines more affordable? And so this is the conversation we now need to start having as a team and as a group, but we can learn from our colleagues in the HIV community that used a number of very, very effective techniques, global funds, patient advocacy, patent pooling, voluntary or compulsory licensing to mobilize getting access to HIV medicines to patients worldwide. And so I think it's time as an oncology community for us to adopt some of those strategies and to think about how, how we should move forward. I have one thought before Manju goes. Um, uh, the thought I had was like, you know, it's really a really cool exercise um, and I um, enjoyed doing it even though it was late, <laughs> I enjoyed doing it. And the reason I think it's so interesting is that it gives you perspective, especially for those of us, uh, you know, as, I mean, I find it give me perspective um, in the sense that like, it, it's sort of like your clothing, you know, you look in your closet and you're like, oh my God, there are all these clothes. And then you start to think about like the clothes you actually wear and the clothes you don't wear that much and the clothes you really don't like. And you realize you could probably give away half your clothes and you know, your, your life's not going to be that different day to day. Um, you're not, you haven't worn that shirt in 10 years. Chris Booth, I know you got some old Queens University shirts you're not wearing. Um, but in oncology, you know, we give all these drugs, especially in the US, we give them all like all the time. And I think we forget that for many of them, they are really unessential. Um, they offer very marginal benefits. And this was a reminder that, you know, we do have some terrific drugs, but we got so many of these drugs that just offer marginal benefits. And if we really had to do without them, we could. I mean, I think you could manage without many of these drugs. Manju, what does this make you think about? I know, I don't know, when, whenever I talk to people who practiced, I don't know about Tata, but most Indian medical centers like Ames, um, you know, you're, you, see, you can see 60 patients a day, 
Is this true? 60 patients a day. You're going rapid fire. Um, you know, you, you're lucky you have a, you have a trainees that are, are very diligent and they do a lot of the hard work. Um, uh, uh, but the attendings go fast and, you know, uh, you have to make, and you're always thinking about how much can this person afford? And so your mind is like, you've got pathways for based on what people can afford and what they can tolerate. Um, and so, and so how does this kind of fit into your thinking? Sure. So I'll just, you know, talk about what uh, Chris was saying that despite having so many older drugs and, uh, you know, why we uh, chose those older drugs from the LMIC and what is the implication if drugs like Osimertinib and Pembro, they come in and our government decide tomorrow to procure it. So we did a little bit of an exercise, what we call as rapid health technology assessment, because we were thinking in terms of getting pembrolizumab into our guidelines. And I'll talk about what those guidelines are in a very quick fashion. So we realize that our entire health budget will go into pembrolizumab and we will not have any money to procure rest of the drugs if we are talking about a national health reimbursement schemes like what we have here in PMJ's scheme. So with that, we realize that if we put all our emphasis on these newer drugs with I would say that these drugs are still with some reasonable margin, uh, you know, magnitude of benefit as opposed to several newer drugs which are coming over a period of time. So that's something which is not doable. So if you talk about whether it's giving jeftinib and alotinib to all these metastatic non-small cell lung cancer through these, you know, government reimbursement schemes, that's that's the only thing which is going to be possible if you want to cover large numbers with reasonable, you know, benefit and reasonable quality of life without pushing them towards poverty. So that's something which is, you know, very, very important when we are interpreting these results and the drugs which are coming onto the AML. The second thing which you asked about that, how do we decide that, you know, where we are going to draw the line, which one goes into this, uh, you know, pathway and which one goes into a little more uh, uh, pathway where there is a little more cost involved. So we have these resource stratified guidelines from National Cancer Grid, and this is a network which is in India for several cancer centers, research organization and patient groups. So we've categorized three, one, what we call as essential, the second is what we call as optimal, and third is optional. Essential is something which requires, you know, that's the minimum thing which should be delivered, the minimum standard of care. Optimal is which is where we feel that subjectively there is a cost-effective, that effective uh, effectiveness is documented. And the optional is where you have the data. So basically for the drugs like Pembro, uh, you know, you have all these CDK4 inhibitors. So that's where, you know, those come into the optional category. And so from the government scheme of the patients who are, you know, under some uh, benefit schemes, these are the patients who get either essential and optimal. Optional is something where people are paying on their own or they have means to, you know, go ahead because we know that our country has a very wide spectrum in terms of socioeconomic status, uh, you know, for patients, for people who come to different centers. So we typically stick to this essential and optimal for the patients who are, you know, who are not, who have minimum resources, who are either in some you know, benefit scheme or they're going to pay on their own and don't have too much resources. So that's a guidance factor for us. I see. That's a, Manji, that's a really good framework. Human, yeah. Manji, just to put the human face on this, I imagine as an oncologist um, in, in India or another, another kind of uh, health system where there's these very pervasive issues of drug access, there must be scenarios that are completely heartbreaking. And I can imagine two scenarios. One is where there's a medicine that you want to deliver to your patient that's going to make a huge difference in their outcome, 
but you know it's going to make uh, the patient and their family destitute and you may or may not be able to get that medicine. I imagine that is just heartbreaking. And, and, and then converse, the other scenario that must be incredibly difficult is when you see patients who um, render their family destitute because they're paying for a medicine that really offers very little benefit. And that is also another tragedy of, of these problems with affordability of cancer medicines. And I'm, I'm sure you're nodding and I'm sure this is something you deal with and see regularly. So that's a you know day-to-day -day clinic scenario that when you you know want to give a drug which is really beneficial and you know that if you prescribe, so sometimes you don't you know you wonder whether you really give that option to the patient that there is an option where you can use this drug and it will have you know a little better benefit than what we are trying to offer or a significant benefit. So like in a few years back, that was a story with rituximab when we didn't have generics. We wanted to give them RCHOP because there was a clear survival benefit. We were all convinced about it, but we knew that if we prescribed rituximab instead of CHOP, uh, we, I mean, there would be nothing left and the family will be definitely pushed below poverty line. And some are already there at that level when they come to us. So that was a challenge and that is still a challenge for several medications. So many times you wonder whether you're doing the right thing by giving this expensive option, even if it has a reasonable magnitude of benefit, because that's going to push them down and uh, that's going to be difficult. And the same way we see people who have received second line therapy or third line therapy in metastatic setting with the expensive drugs and they're really you know, drained out all their finances and they land up in, at, at our center. And we wonder you know, why, why this happened, meaning what, is, what are we trying to achieve by delivering these drugs, which are so expensive with very limited benefit, just for the sake that there is another line of treatment available uh, I, I don't think we do the right job there in those situations. Yeah. Let me give you both uh, any parting thoughts for the listeners. This is a really interesting paper. I look forward to reading it and uh, criticizing the choices of others. No, I look forward to uh, reading it and thinking about it. And I think it will um, make me think more about my day-to-day -day practice. Um, any closing thoughts, Manju, Chris? I guess I would just say that I think, um, you know, I think we can learn from our colleagues uh, in the HIV community. And I think this isn't really just, uh, you know, a problem in poor countries. I think we need to see this as this is a global problem. And I think there needs to be solidarity amongst oncologists worldwide that we need to advocate for patients, regardless of where they live, that they have access to uh, safe, effective, high quality and affordable cancer care. And I think that um, you know, I think the, the global oncology movement, one of the primary goals is that and to be able to work with our partners in different health systems that we're all advocating for a common cause. So certainly, uh, I think our research team hopes that these results are provocative and stimulate, um, you know, that, that sense of solidarity and also some serious discussions of the level of uh, cancer drug pricing and health policy. Manju, final thoughts? That's what Yeah, I so I would just say that, you know, when we are approving drugs, we have to be very stringent in terms of when we are talking of magnitude of benefit. Let's not approve drugs for two and three months, which are going to cost several thousand, you know, dollars to leave aside Indian rupees. So it's that's something which we need to keep in mind. And I think with each approval, the HTA has to be built in. And that HTA should be not just for the upper, you know, not just for high-income countries, it's for the LMIC. Yeah. And we need to work towards, you know, making this entire process of drug approval, the pricing transparent so that we can, we realize that what it requires to be delivered to an LMIC or to the last person who has no means on their own to spend for that drug and still get that drug. So, so that's something which we need to think about while approving the drugs. That's well put. I agree with all that. Thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure to talk to you both. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Bye. Oh, we're back. We're back. We're back. And this is a real pleasure. Two of the, the great friends of the show, Plenary Session. I've got Dr. Christopher Booth, professor of medicine, Kingston, Ontario, Queen's University. And I've got Aaron Goodman, also known as the legendary Papa Heem on Twitter. Aaron and Chris, it's a pleasure to have you both on this episode. Thanks, Vinay. Uh, always a fan of the show. And it's always great to catch up uh, on YouTube and by telephone and certainly to have uh, Aaron involved in this discussion. This is going to be terrific. So let me let me say the title of your paper. It's out now, Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. It's called Practicing on the Edge of Oncology When Standard of Care Feels Uncomfortable. And this is this is really a splendid article. And it really merges, I think, the experiences of a consummate hematologist with a consummate oncologist. And the one-liner, and then I'll let you both kind of take talk about it, but the one-liner I see is there are some things in oncology that we feel pressure to do because a number of our peers do it. But when you look at the evidence, you find the evidence is often lacking and you find yourself a bit of an outlier. We, I think we've all felt this to some degree, at least the three of us and maybe many of the listeners. And, and it's really about kind of grappling with that space when you don't do or do something that your peers don't do. So why don't I start with you, Chris? Why don't you talk about maybe the feeling you've had, what led you to this, this, this example you use in the paper, which is really powerful. Let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, thanks, Vinay. So, um... Try to think about how I met Aaron, but I think it might have been through you. I think Aaron wrote something about uh, being a junior staff hematologist at a conference or a tumor board, and and feeling a bit uncomfortable because he disagreed with you know all the experts in the room who are much you know older and perhaps wiser than him. Although that remains, I guess, to be debated. <laughs> and it resonated with me. I didn't know Aaron, but I I think I wrote to you and said, Benai, can you please connect me? with this guy, Papa Heem. And, Papa and Heem, Aaron, yeah. Aaron and I had a great discussion and realized that while I didn't know anything about lymphoma or dose-adjusted chemotherapy, <laughs> um, I probably don't need to actually, based on what Aaron <laughs> teaches me. But anyhow, <laughs> what resonated was uh, what I think he, you know, Aaron really hit the nail on the head when he articulated this feeling of discomfort where, you know, we pride ourselves in providing high quality evidence-based care that's consistent with guidelines. And it's this uncomfortable feeling where um, we don't necessarily agree with the guidelines. And all of us have an uncomfortable feeling when we're doing treatments where there's really no evidence to support. It's a bit of a gray zone. And that's, you know, a context where we just have to use our best clinical judgment. But I think the examples we write about, and I'd be interested for, for listeners um, to your podcast to kind of add to the list, because I'm yeah. sure there's, you know, dozens of other treatments out there where there actually is evidence and uh, the evidence is very clear. And for some reason, these treatments are still on guidelines and we keep doing them and maybe we shouldn't be. And I mean, maybe a theme we can come back to is I, I think both for Aaron's example and mine in the early days, maybe the evidence looked, you know, kind of promising and it maybe made sense that that was a standard practice for a while, but at least for the examples we, we write about, eventually the evidence matures um, I think some hoser wrote about this once called medical reversal, but anyhow, the evidence accumulates and maybe we need to revisit um, what the practices once were. So those are just maybe some introductory comments. Aaron, Aaron how, what's your recollection about how this came together? Yeah. So uh, again, yeah, thanks for having me back on the show. I love being on. Um, 
you know, uh, when I said, you know, he, he told me about you, uh, um, that you guys knew each other and that you'd read some of my tweets. And then I read about kind of the stuff you're interested in. And we had an introductory call and where we retold our stories uh, for you, uh, Avastin, which you'll get into, and for me, uh, dose-adjusted Epoch. And uh, it felt good, uh, at least for me as a junior uh, professor, to know that I wasn't alone with these feelings uh, and that other uh, more senior professors uh, and oncologists uh, shared these views. And that's where we started to have the discussion about putting together our, our current paper. And I can at least, you know, I can start with, uh, you know, my current example. So yeah, I, I was, uh, yeah. so I'm a bone marrow transplant <laughs> hematologist and, um, uh, you know, all throughout fellowship, uh, um, you know, uh, we learn how to treat diseases, but you don't really have, at least for me, you can't really dive into the literature like hardcore, like you want to, there's so much to learn and you're learning everything about every disease is you really just want to have a general understanding, learn some kind of algorithms, learn some side effects and, 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 and then get to practice. And, uh, so you, you know, for aggressive lymphomas, mainly diffuse large B cell lymphoma, um, you know, we would treat some with ARCHOP and some with this dose-adjusted uh, uh, regimen called dose-adjusted EPOC-R. Uh, really briefly, what that is, is it's basically uh, traditional ARCHOP is every three weeks. I think most oncologists are, are good with it. It has a predictable toxicity profile, fairly convenient for the patient. And um, despite numerous attempts, it is the king uh, of, uh, of cancer. I mean, it's then and again, never been beaten by anything uh, uh, in the treatment of aggressive B-cell lymphomas. Uh, a dose-adjusted EPOC-R is basically a five-day chemotherapy regimen um, where uh, four days of it are infusional uh, chemotherapy. It has the same agents as CHOP, but they add a topicide, and the doses are uh, increased every cycle on purpose to get the ANC, the neutrophil count, to hit a certain threshold. You're really maximizing the myelosuppression in a you know, if you read it, it's supposedly a safe manner, uh, uh, and you adjust the uh, chemotherapy based off each cycle. And um, um, it's more chemotherapy, clearly, and it's a little bit of a pain. Um, many places require admission for it. And um, uh, even if you do it outpatient, it's a pump, and they got to come in five days in a row. Um, um, so it's a more cumbersome uh, regimen. And um, just like all of oncology, and this is, I, as Chris said, please share examples this was studied in phase one and two studies, and this was the bee's knees. I mean, this was the, <laughs> I mean, this stuff looked promising. I mean, it was dominating lymphoma in these single arm studies. Uh, the response rates were high. Uh, the, the PFS seemed great. The cure rates seemed good. And um, we were happy about it and excited. And we knew that diffuse large B cell lymphoma, kind of like any lymphoma, it's many diseases. And, uh, then I and I have talked about this, you know, the more we learned about a disease, the more we separate out into different risk categories and we call these new entities. And uh, uh, there are certain subtypes of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that have genomic rearrangements called double hit, or they express more BCL2 in MYC, or they have more extranodal disease, high LDH that were higher risk. We know that. So we were like, this chemo is better. It seems to work better. These higher risk patients don't do as well with our shop. Let's give more chemo. That's what we need to do. Bad disease biology, we can overcome that with more chemo. Uh, uh, and it was adopted. And um, this is what we were giving. Uh, in at least five to seven years, we were giving it, not just to this double hit entity, which we'll talk about, and but to like anything that kind of was like, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a little, right? I mean, right for yeah, now. Yeah, people, were, people give it, they get a little nervous. They say, let's so, just give it. Let's just yeah, give it. Yeah, let's crank up yeah. that atopicide. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, and I get it. You got a crap, a bad disease and you're feeling scared about it. We know more chemo might kill these diseases. I mean, that's how transplant works, right? You escalate the chemotherapy. So we were giving it for just about everything. I was doing it. That's how I was trained. Um, and um, 
we were admitting patients to the hospital at the time and we were doing it. And then finally, you know, two years ago, or not, not even be three, the CalGB study by Bartlett came out in JCO where they did the randomized study to answer this question, despite many had already thought they knew the answer, right? We've never seen that before in oncology where we, you know, so, <laughs> so they do the study and they showed no difference in response rate and they showed no difference in PFS. So not even in crap in surrogate endpoints that you write so much, they couldn't even show any difference in those. Uh, and then overall survival was no different, but they did show something important. Although I always argue, you do not need a randomized clinical trial to show what they showed. Basically toxicity. they showed more toxicity. And I always say, you don't need a randomized trial for that. If you add more chemo to chemo, you're, there's gonna be more toxicity. It's just impossible to not really decrease the toxicity. So there was more significant febrile neutropenia, more mucositis, uh, more neuropathy, and they didn't even look at it, but it's more of a pain in the butt for patients to get. Um, and I'm sure if we follow long enough, there's probably more leukemia uh, from the side. So um, um, that was enough for me. I was like, I'm done. And yet we were still, then, you know, the doctors were like, well, we were wrong. Let's just give it to this double hit group. They're even worse. You know, the double expressors, okay, mainly our chops fine for that. They proved us wrong, but the double hit, surely they need this side. So it's still in our guidelines, our NCCN, it's still discussed at tumor boards and everyone's given it. And um, I was uncomfortable because I know for sure and had a randomized data that it was not benefiting. And that's where I started to, to change. And uh, you know, this is where I know Chris can now expand, but how do you have this conversation with your patient who has double hit lymphoma where if they see any expert in the world who's way well known more than me, I mean, yeah, I'm Papa Heem, they don't care about that. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm a knowledgeable lymphoma doctor, but I'm definitely not, you know, I'm not designing all the lymphoma trials. I don't claim to do that. I, you know, Celgene um, does that for us. Don't worry yes, about you're that. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I acknowledge that, you know, there are people who've done way more lymphoma than me, uh, have a dedicated lymphoma clinic that I don't. And I don't pretend that I'm that. I do think I'm knowledgeable. But, and know yeah. yeah. Well, Chris, before you jump in, let me just toss on a few more logs on this fire. Um, Cause I think he did a great job of kind of pointing out the, the troubles here. It's infusional which you know, you know, you guys from Jiang, we learned that from you, Chris. We learned that from you, five of you. We're, getting, we're spread that out, put it on a right, pump. Right. Um, we added drug, obviously, that's better. But I think the other thing to add to what Aaron is saying is that this is a space, lymphoma, where this isn't the first time we've been on this merry-go-round. In the 70s, 80s, we had promacitabomb. We all thought it was better than CHOP. And then Rick Fisher had the 93 NEJM study that shows it's a tie. We had, you know, and Baycod. We had other multi-drug regimens, more toxic, more cumbersome. Uh, couldn't beat CHOP. CHOP is the king. Now I guess they say Polo is the king, but we'll learn about that. We'll go put Polo to the test. Okay, but CHOP is the king. Our CHOP once every 21 days, just one day, so convenient. Now you got people coming in, they get the R, they get this infusion, then they get the, they get the cyclophosphamide at the end, then they got to get um, you know GCSF and keep giving that. Then you got to keep checking them at least three times a week, their CBC, sometimes in the hospital a week at a time. It's cumbersome. And then half the time, some of these docs, they don't properly dose adjust. They're not even dose adjusting right. So what are you doing? Um, so I think it's you know, logistically a headache. It's a headache for the patient. And the only randomized data is null. And then of course people say, well, it would have worked, would have worked in that subgroup. You know, that's the favorite thing. Chris, let's hear about your example. And yeah, so I'll, yeah. thanks. So I'll give my example and then it'll be good to come back to see because I think Aaron and I, despite being completely different diseases, contexts, generations, specialties, uh, I, we actually have a very similar approach to, to how we kind of address this. Um, 
So uh, I think Vinay, you kidded me about this and you're like, dude, why are you writing about such an old drug? You're an old oncologist. So Bevacizumab, <laughs> so this came out, you know, this, this was hot when I was training. So circa 2004, 2005, Aaron Goodman was probably an aspiring rock and roll star in middle school. Vinay was a philosopher in the Northeast US. Um, and I was kind of a medical oncology trainee at Princess Margaret Hospital. And uh, it was the early days of the molecular era. And so we had a targeted drug, no more of this cytotoxic chemotherapy stuff. And it came out in the initial papers, um, you know, look, looked appealing, right? There was a five-month survival benefit in the Hurwitz trial. And then there was a two-month benefit in the second line in Giantonio. And then I trained and, you know, everyone said, oh, IFL is too toxic. Don't give it. We've moved to the infusional approach. Um, and then what, what happened was there was the big, uh, there's a trial, KPOX, Z-Lock, uh, KPOX, Fullflox, plus or minus BEV. And it was a completely negative trial. I mean, it showed a one month improvement in PFS with a p-value below 0.05. And it showed a non-significant one month improvement in overall survival. In my mind, it was just, it was a negative trial. This and is Lensalt's JCO 2008. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was presented at ASCO, and I was super junior, and I actually got up in the auditorium after Vogel from New York and asked a question. And I said, you know, Dr. Saltz, you know, do you think it's possible that in the context of modern chemotherapy, when we're giving bevacizumab with the best chemotherapy we've got, maybe it just doesn't work. Maybe the other trials there was a benefit because we we're giving it to substandard chemotherapy. And he was, and him and I actually, I, I wrote letters to the editor back and forth with him. And, and, you know, as, as typical with Dr. Saltz, he was, you know, extremely gracious and, uh, you know, took my question and had a slightly different perspective, but I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think there was some, some reasonable points there to wonder. So this was still, you know, this is like 2008, but it was so entrenched by then in standard practice and it has remained entrenched. And since then, there's been some other trials that have come out that have consistently shown in colorectal cancer, when you give it, um, you know, when it's compared to a placebo or observation and you're giving it with traditional or, you know, current cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens, it really has no benefit. And this has been replicated in almost every other solid tumor. Uh, I mean, it's probably one of the most studied drugs. And, you know, Benai, you and I have written about this in, mm -hmm. in our paper about multiplicity. Yeah. Um, and, and so either the drug doesn't work at all, we're just finding random highs and lows based on statistical mm -hmm. fluke and multiplicity, or it's just an extremely marginal drug in a whole bunch of tumors, or maybe it helps a few people that have a specific molecular form of colorectal cancer that we just don't know about yet. But either way, it provides very little, if any, benefit to all of our patients. Now, it doesn't make people feel sick, but it does have a risk of bowel perforation, thrombosis, Stroke. hypertension, proteinuria, et cetera, et cetera. And it has huge cost implications. So it, it just seems amazing to me that, you know, almost 20 years later, this drug is still standard of practice. There's a hundred billion dollars of sales on this drug. It's, it's number three of all time, only behind trastuzumab and rituximab, which are actually drugs that have real benefit. Like those are drugs we probably should be putting our money in. And so, you know, there's a, a famous Canadian oncologist I will not name, who referred to bevacizumab as the greatest scam in modern oncology. This is like, you know, 10 years ago, and was still kind of a contemporary drug. And I think it just became groupthink. We just adopted it and, and we kind of refused to reject it. Um, so when I was really junior, I felt uncomfortable being an outlier and I would look for any contraindication, hypertension, a previous clot, cardiac events, et cetera. 
and not use it, but you know, I would use it with other patients. And then as I became more comfortable in my practice and more data emerged, um, I was more willing to be an outlier and, and have you know, some very honest discussions with patients. Um, and I think that's where kind of Aaron and I converged on our approach, and maybe we'll speak with that in a moment. But I guess the other problem with retaining these treatments is um, you know, they become the backbone of every future clinical trial. So it's like once we have these entrenched in practice, it becomes really hard to get rid of it because everything we do in the future adds on to it. So it, it's a really difficult um, scenario, especially, you know, I, I think uh, at Aaron's stage as being, you know, fairly junior faculty, it, it actually takes quite a bit of courage to do that. And I think one of the, the reasons that Aaron and I decided to write this was there's, there's going to be people that disagree with our perspectives on the evidence for uh, dose-adjusted EPOC and bevacizumab, but I think we mostly write, wrote it just to uh, get this kind of concept out, out in the realm for discussion. That's so well put. You know, I think it's it's interesting the way we tell ourselves story, Chris, and about Avastin, which is, you know, people say this. They say like, you know, yeah, it, it works with IFL. It didn't work as well with Folfox. And then in Lung, you know, it uh, didn't work in Avail, but with Carbopaclitaxel, it works. I was like, yeah, you could tell yourself all this story. It works here with this backbone, not with that, this cancer, not that cancer. It doesn't work in breast, works in brain, works in cervical the best. Or it's possible that they're just some fluke positives because you keep testing the same thing. Yeah. Aaron, we call Avastin um, low toxicity Selenexor. It's a smooth, it goes down smooth, but it smells like Selenexor. So Aaron, what do you say? How do you think about, you know, how do you counsel your patients when you, yeah, what, you're in the room, you know, double hit lymphoma patient, me, let's say, uh, you know, what are you going to tell me? How am I, how are you going to walk me through this decision-making? Yeah, no, this is hard. And now I've, I've done this and uh, it's taken some practice. And I, I you know, now I even try to get the fellows in the room with me when I'm doing stuff like this. They got to um, learn sometime. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of, you know, it's my consent. And I've, I've gotten, I think, you know, something I didn't learn so well in fellowship is how to do a good informed consent. And I take like extreme pride now in my informed consents with patients. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I always like starting, and this is how I teach the fellows, I start out with my informed consent is kind of what happens if we do nothing to kind of just really tell our patients what, you know, especially with blood cancers, I'm dealing with pretty aggressive things and we do pretty crazy things in hematologic malignancies. And uh, that, you know, without setting the context of what their disease means, it might seem ludicrous to recommend some of the things that we are. So I always like saying, you know, we do nothing, you know, here's someone with a double hit lymphoma, a very aggressive lymphoma. Um, you're not going to be around probably in a few months. Uh, um, uh, uh, and then I go over what we know. And uh, what we know is that RCHOP is king in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Um, but we also know that RCHOP is suboptimal in double hits. I mean, if, I, I agree, double hits worse. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, and I, I discussed that in general, double hits um, are, uh, can be more chemo refractory, uh, not respond. Um, although we typically know that pretty fast uh, um, within a few cycles. Um, and the relapse rate's much higher and that the long-term outcomes that you see reported, you know, these 60 to 80% cure rates are much lower in double hit, maybe more like 30 to 50%. Um, and then um, I discuss, uh, um, you know, what have we done to get around this? And I start discussing more intensive regimens, including EPOC, uh, R. And I discuss that, you know, we really haven't shown in any study uh, that, that, that these more intensive regimens improve upon these outcomes. We haven't. Uh, there are some data sets that disagree with each other and there's small retrospective studies that show maybe improvement. Uh, uh, and I go over the levels of evidence and I go, really, we have no idea. We just have a feeling that maybe it helps, but the outcomes are actually still pretty bad regardless of what we right. do. 
and I, I hammer that home. I go, no matter what we do, the outcomes aren't great. Um, and and one I more go, thing well, to add, you saw Gaurav Gaul, uh, Goyle's um, a paper, flat iron paper that he presented at EHA this year. Yes. You are you going to talk about this? Yes, I could. Okay. I, yeah, I, I mean, I will talk about that. Uh, um, but, I, you know, I'll talk about it now. Basically, the flat iron, uh, which looked at uh, more of a popular, you know, everyone in the flat iron database of who got RCHOP and dose adjusted EPOC for double hit lymphoma is a pretty, again, level of evidence. It's retrospective and, and has limitations, but that's all we got pushing for it. And it was the largest, I believe, collection yep. of these patients. Yep. And it showed no benefit. That's right. Okay. Uh, um, so we now have, you know, four or five papers in slightly different groups, some showing some maybe benefit, some showing none. So clearly we have no idea. And that's what I tell the patients. Uh, and then I go over the facts and we, and the facts are what we know about EPOC, which we know beautifully from the CalGB. And I go over the inconvenience of therapy. And then I go over it is not unreasonable to still do EPOC. And I, ha I say, I don't, if a colleague of mine wants to do it, I don't think it's crazy, okay? I think it's wrong and I think it's more toxicity, but I don't think it's crazy. Um, and then I also say, I, I, I always offer second opinions with any of my colleagues or our close colleagues up North in Los Angeles. Uh, and I say, they may very well recommend uh, this alternative therapy. And then we talk about it together. And I will say, I, I have not had one choose EPOC. I even had one get second opinion and still they get our chop. Um, so again, this is a rare scenario, but um, I find with that approach and really educating the patients uh, that, that it, it's effective and they tend to agree. Now, someone could say, you can convince the patient to do anything you want, right? You know, that's how we convince people to do allogeneic transplants. It's how you sell it. Um, but I do feel I'm being honest. I'm going over the data the best I can. Uh, and at the end of it, I think the mutual agreement between me and the patient of the understanding of for sure toxicity and really unknown benefits uh, that we agree on the same conclusion, which is our job. The only thing I'll add is um, before Chris, I'll give Chris the last word before we go. But um, the only thing I'll add there is, you know, that we always talk about this in like medicine that something has like an unknown benefit, um, but it has like logistic headaches and toxicity. I think the thing that like people don't realize that takes a while to realize in medicine is like the probability that things that have not yet proven superiority in well-done studies, the probability that they actually work better, but you just haven't proven it yet, versus the probability that you just have deceived yourself into thinking they work better, the latter is like huge. Like most of the things people think work better don't actually work better. And so I agree with everything you said. And in addition to it, if I were to bet, I would put all my poker chips on that it actually is not better than CHOP, even in that subgroup. And we have just deceived ourselves into thinking that. If we did um, a randomized trial, which would be impossible, I agree. Well, they're doing it. Well, no, I think they can do it. Yeah. They're, do, they're doing it for, a, what's it called? Venetoclax. Yeah, so they, you're right. right? They found it, a way to do it for Venetoclax. Yeah, they did the randomized <laughs> trial with our choppers EPOC. I mean, no, I mean, I'm, I don't think there'd be any benefit other than more toxicity. And you're right. They are doing the randomized trial. And similar with the Avastin story, they've adopted the EPOC yeah. backbone. They're adopting the wrong backbone. Yeah, I know. The they're adding wrong, I know. Venetoclax. I know. This is going to be guaranteed. I would the counts are going to go to... It's going to be neutrophils. It's going to be. I wouldn't enroll in the study. I actually think it will show the combo will yeah, be worse. I, uh, 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 I, I would not enroll in the study. Chris, you're listening to me, study designers, please change that. <laughs> I agree with Aaron. Chris, um, final thoughts on this issue. It's such a great yeah. article. Let me give one more plug for it. people can check it out. Practicing on the edge of oncology, and that's really well put. It's the edge of oncology. Um, and uh, what are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, the example that I wrote about in our essay was, and this just happened, I don't know, six months ago, I had a 70-year-old woman, very fit, um, first-line metastatic colon cancer, and I think she was uh, either RAS mutant or, or uh, right-sided wild type, so an EGFR inhibitor was not um, part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So we used full theory, first line, so I had a long discussion about full theory, the pros and cons and side effects, and she was very keen to get moving on it, and then at the end, uh, and what I do now is I, I, I separate the antibody from the cytotoxic because I see them as being kind of, you know, separate therapies. They go together, but it's two parts of the informed consent. So she was keen to move ahead with full fury. And then I said, in addition to the chemotherapy drugs, we can add an antibody and the antibody probably won't make you feel sick. Um, but there's a risk of serious side effects, not commonly, but things like heart attack, stroke, blood clots. And then sometimes you can have problems with blood pressure and protein in your urine. Um, And I said, the problem is, is that the most contemporary clinical trial that compared getting the antibody to not getting the antibody uh, showed that there was no improvement in how long you live. Um, We don't think it's going to improve quality of life. And if anything, uh, it might slow down the growth of cancer on your CAT scan by a month or so. Um, And I said, I can't rule out the possibility that maybe there's a small improvement in survival, but if it is, it's measured in weeks. And, And she looked at me and she said, why would anyone take that therapy? And it really, and I've repeated that exact same conversation probably four or five times since then. And with one exception, um, all of my patients, uh, you know, say, no, I'm not interested in that. So I think that was the unifying theme is, you know, Aaron and I, we, we recognize that we might be outside uh, guidelines. We're very clear with our patients. We go through it. And, you know, at the end of the day, we try to match the treatment recommendations with the values and preference of our patients. And I guess I'll just close with kind of in the last paragraph of our essay, we say something like, <clears throat> As oncologists, our patients expect us to move very quickly to adopt new therapies when they emerge. But I think it's also worth stating that our our patients would expect us to have the humility to recognize when treatments that we once believed in might not work quite as well as we think. Chris, that's so well put. And I'll just conclude by saying two things. One, I know you're Canadian because you went to Full Fury, not Full Fox. And I know you're the senior oncologist in the room because I see all those gray hairs in your beard. So thank you, gentlemen, for doing this. Christopher Booth, Aaron Goodman, a real pleasure. My two favorite people in oncology. Thank you. Thanks, Manai. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks. All right, we're back. Plenary session virtual edition, Zoom edition. I'm joined by Chris Booth and Adam Fenditis. And we, the three of us, are the authors of a new paper. It's called, Has the Current Oncology Value Paradigm Forgotten Patients' Time? It's out in JAM Oncology. I'm gonna start by introducing my colleague, Chris Booth, professor of medicine, Kingston, Ontario, Canada, Queen's University, uh, friend of the show. Chris, um, introduce us to Adam, introduce us to this paper. Great. Thanks, Vinay, for having us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat on plenary session. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Adam, who led this uh, essay in a moment. I'll just introduce Adam. So Adam is a medical oncologist. He did his internal medicine training with us here at Queen's, and I got to know him then uh, and worked quite closely with him. He then went uh, to University of Calgary to do his medical oncology training and then came back to Queen's to be my research fellow um, about a year and a half ago. And uh, we had a lot of fun working with Adam. Um, And then Adam has just moved on to a faculty position uh, in British Columbia with the BC Cancer Agency in Victoria. So he's just in the midst of moving. In addition to being an excellent writer, uh, a wonderful physician and a really creative thinker, Adam's hidden talents are that he was, and this is probably what got him into the fellowship program when I told a department head is, 
He's an exceptionally good freestyle rapper, and he's very good at surfing. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Maybe later in the interview, we'll get into those things. But uh, Adam, uh, I'll hand over to you in a moment to walk us through your essay. But like all good research projects and commentaries, I think the backstory is often quite interesting. So like most things that I do in life now that are of any interest, this goes back to the legendary waterfall hike in rural Oregon. <laughs> I can't remember if it was the waterfall hike or when we were having beers in, uh, in Kingston on the shores of Lake Ontario. Mm -hmm. But one of the conversations that came up was Vinay and I were chatting about value frameworks and benefit and endpoints. And he was going off about his usual surrogacy PFS thing. And I was going off about my usual kind of six weeks PFS thing. And then we realized that there's there's a, a concept that really is not well described or talked about. And, and we at the time used the term kind of opportunity cost. It's a way to represent when we're giving therapies and especially in the palliative context that are very small benefits, there, there's other things that the patient gives up in addition to side effects, and financial costs. Um, there, there are these other unspoken opportunity costs that really do not get well articulated when we have these discussions with patients. And so that led, I think, to the genesis of this essay. And uh, I'll hand over to you, Adam, now to maybe walk us through some of the concepts um, that we've outlined in the paper. Well, I'm just gonna take a slight detour and say that this essay was actually one of the hardest things that I think probably both of us have ever had to write because it was actually like 17 different essays that we originally tried to fit into one. And it started interfacing with a bunch of different things like the economics literature, where we found out that opportunity cost is not probably the oh, right yes. word to use. Right. <laughs> I got mad about that, yeah. <laughs> and perhaps shadow costs is actually a better term. So <laughs> things that people give up that uh, rightly or wrongly is probably down to us not communicating, you know, the true cost of any given treatment, because even as oncologists, we tend to fixate so strongly on these endpoints that came from trials. And so overall survival being the thing that matters to everyone, but also, you know, quality of life and things like that. But there are other intangible things that are also not necessarily captured by current quality of life metrics. Um, and the big one that we kind of talk about in this paper is time that's lost to treatment, whether that's someone who goes through a ton of side effects and ends up hospitalized for, you know, a period of weeks, um, or whether it's just, you know, kind of the day-to-day -day costs of going to your appointments, getting blood work, and then getting chemo, you know, whether it's every week or every two weeks or every three weeks, um, and how that looks as we go through, you know, first-line treatment, second-line treatment, and third-line treatment. Um, and then I think the big thing that really I took away from this is it really is most important near kind of the end of life and later line treatments where a lot of the time we're applying data that didn't necessarily apply to that population in the first place. Um, and so you're talking about a person who's, you know, not necessarily super well, and you're talking about giving them more treatment um, that probably is not going to be beneficial, especially because they're going to have to give up a lot of their remaining time to just get the treatment. And so that's kind of the overarching idea behind the paper. Um, and I don't know if you want to go through more details. No, no, no that's I helpful, totally Adam. And I think, I mean, I'll, I'll let Vinay kind of jump in in a moment, but I mean, you know, these are really important and practical elements of, of the cancer journey for patients. You know, the opportunity to spend time with loved ones, with family, with friends, to go fishing, to pursue their interests, to maybe work, to travel. And um, by virtue of coming into the cancer center and then getting sick with our treatments, you know, we, we take away those, those opportunities. And, um, 
you know, I think as, I think as you wrote very eloquently in the early part of the essay, you know, when the treatment benefit is large, the relative loss of this amount of time uh, becomes perhaps less less important. But when the treatment benefit is small and time is short at the end of life, all of a sudden this lost opportunity or these lost experiences become ex really, really important. And it occasionally does come up. I'm actually surprised it doesn't come up that often, but patients will say, um, oh, well, if the chemotherapy is that much benefit, am I just gonna spend all that time in hospital? And I'm surprised it doesn't come up more often, but what does come up, and I think all of us probably get a bit of a sick feeling in our stomach is when we hear someone say, oh no, I'm not gonna go to my cousin's wedding because I don't wanna delay my treatment, or I'm not gonna go camping next weekend because you know I'm due for chemo and I just wanna make sure that I'm here on time for it. And I think those are our areas where we can perhaps have more honest discussions and help navigate with our patients through. That's so well put. You know, the things that jump in my mind when I think about the cost is like, I want anyone who's embarking on a bone marrow transplant for somebody to calculate for people with this indication, this chromosomal abnormalities, this risk cytogenetics, getting transplant. How many days do you spend in the hospital and out of the hospital? I mean, that's a nice research idea. I think about people enrolling on phase one, phase two clinical trials at the end of life. And you think about all the extra PKPD visits for blood draws and all the infusion visits. And you start to ask yourself, you know, even if this drug gives somebody an extra month, how much of that month do we take back by bringing them here, driving back and forth to the hospital and having to stay here or having to do a blood test. And I think this essay kind of gets at this, which is, you know, time is precious for all of us. It's even more precious as the less you have of it. And the point you made really well, Chris, is like, if the drug is giving you another year, then sure, losing a few days here or there for visits, totally reasonable. The drug's only giving you three weeks, two weeks, 10 days, like erlotinib. Um, the price of even one day of nausea, one day of diarrhea, it can it can offset so much of that. Um, I think that's really what this essay is getting at. Um, Adam, can you walk us through the pancreas cancer example? Because yeah. that's a really common disease, treatments we give every day in clinic. And uh, you know there, there was some data that might help inform that. Yeah, so the pancreas data that Chris is talking about is a paper, I think it's by Bange is how I pronounce it uh, at all. Um, but what they did was actually pretty interesting is they just basically quantified the amount of time that patients are spending, you know, going to appointments, including travel time. Um, and this <clears> isn't including blood draws or hospitalization at all. So it's actually probably an underestimate of the amount of time that patients are spending at the cancer center. And so they follow patients through their kind of pancreatic cancer journey and ultimately find that 10% of the days that they are alive are spent getting cancer treatment. Um, and when you think about, you know, the average survival of metastatic pancreatic cancer, even in trials being between, you know, 10 months to a year kind of thing, um, that's actually quite a substantial amount of time for a treatment that usually gives, you know, either one or two months of benefit potentially. And so it kind of is the exact same as the point you were making, Benai, was that, you know, if all of your time that you're gaining is actually spent in the cancer center, is that worthwhile? And that answer is actually different from person to person, right? And so I just think it's something that we are bad at emphasizing and actually bad at, you know, calculating or following. Because at the end of the day, every single treatment is actually different in terms of the actual time cost to a patient. And this is something else that we actually touch on in the paper is that there is reasonable data that most patients prefer oral therapy to IV therapy. And one of the theories arising from that paper is that 
it's probably because of the amount of time that they're saving without having to go into the hospital. They can just take it at home. So they're actually not really losing time the same way someone who's getting, you know, gemcitabine every, you know, like week for three weeks on is losing. And so I just think it's something that's interesting to think about that each treatment does have a unique time cost that is different than its actual side effect cost. Yeah, no, it's well put. Adam. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase a paragraph in here and it comes from one of my teachers in oncology. Um, I'm sure as you guys have had too. So many of my great teachers have been my patients. Um, and this comes from uh, a, a published essay or commentary I actually wrote with this patient. So I can say her name, it's the public domain. So is this Penny Nelson, who is a very dear patient who had metastatic small bowel cancer and um, taught me a lot and, and, and ended up wanting to kind of share her pearls of wisdom with the oncology community. So we published this in the Canadian Medical Association Journal a couple of years ago, um, just shortly actually, the, the paper finally came out in press just shortly after she died. Um, and so I'll just read here because there's some, I think, some powerful lessons that again come from Penny's voice, which, which was in the back of my mind when I was uh, helping Adam and, and Vinay write this. As we write, while time has intrinsic value for all people, the concept of limited time becomes more acute in the context of an incurable illness. In the face of terminal bowel cancer, one patient referred to time lost for medical care as appointmentitis. In this narrative account, the patient reminds us that the diagnosis of cancer quickens time and patients lose patience. The good doctor will realize this. High treatment burden is costly beyond the financial sense with direct effects on patients' professional, social, and family life. This cost increases with later lines of therapy, which typically offer smaller gains, but re in require increasing time in the cancer center. Yeah. I mean, I think that's spot on. I think about, you know, when you really imagine the day in the life of a cancer patient getting an infusion, people may not fully appreciate, but what do you have to do? Often you have to get there early the day of and get the blood work done because there's a 90 minute gap before you even get a result. And the doctor won't even give you the dose of medicine until they see the LFTs or the CBC or whatever. Then you got to, you know, go off, get a cup of coffee, maybe walk around, waste, you know, 90 minutes, come back, check in, fill out that clipboard asking questions that are very silly because we know all this information about the person, but they had to fill it out. And then they got to wait their turn to be called, get called, get taken to the first room, sit in that room, get your blood pressure taken, your temperature taken, and wait until you get to the second room. The second room is the classic, the butcher paper on the table, and you got to decide where you want to sit while you wait for your doctor. The doctor comes, eventually sits, talks to you, makes sure you're clear for your infusion, says, okay, um, or you're seen by a nurse and the nurse clears you for your infusion. Um, and then you go back to the next step, access the port, get things going, talk to pharmacy, have them send the bag. And um, so quickly, you know, half the day is gone. The whole day is gone. I always tell people, depending on the regimen, you know, expect to spend six hours, eight hours. And we forget that that is a huge time sink, I think. And when you're feeling ill, waking up early, it's, it's exhausting for people. I know people talk about how uh, exhausted they are even the day after, because this is a sick cancer patient. And those are all kind of impositions we make with the promise that what we're giving is something that justifies the impositions. But I think the purpose of this essay was to draw attention to the fact that often we don't calculate that. When you talk about 10% of the time a pancreas cancer patient is getting treatment, that's significant. But I want to say one thing, Chris. That doesn't justify the control arm of polo trial. That was still, that was still bad. That was still bad. Don't get away by saying yeah, I spared yeah, them that yeah, time yeah, in the yeah. hospital. That was still an inadequate control arm. However, you're right. Point you're, right. you're right. 
So um, I guess just to throw it back to you guys. So what do you think moving forward are some of the actionable items that our community should take, recognizing that? And I think, you know, uh, it was Dr. Sledge, who was the handling editor at GEM Oncology, who, uh, you know, was very gracious to, to accept our essay. And in one of his letters to us, he actually used the term time toxicity, mm -hmm. which I actually hadn't used or heard before. And I think, you know, Dr. Sledge, I don't know if he coined it or not, but I think we should you know, start to promote the concept and the use of that term within our field, time toxicity. So, so I think the first step is just to begin acknowledging this more explicitly with patients. And um, I mean, Adam, you had some thoughts about how to measure this, I think, because it's hard for us to quantify it. I mean, then I just kind of went on a monologue about how long it is for the patient in the day, but someone should probably measure that. I mean, <laughs> we talked about this very briefly. I mean, you could definitely measure it like in terms of a lot of different like mechanisms with the most sophisticated being like geotagging people and seeing how much time they're actually spending in any given location while you're doing a trial. But that's obviously more expensive. Um, there's other ways where if, you know, you pilot a new drug or whatever, you could actually just ask people how much time they estimated that they spent at the cancer center and you would get a reasonable, you know, result, whether that's right or not. You know, everything is imperfect if you measure it that way. But I think more importantly, kind of alluding to what you said, just acknowledging it is probably the first step. But when I think when I started thinking about this, the thing I thought most about was like the way that health systems are designed somewhat. Um, and in COVID, we actually saw a shift where our system changed somewhat. And in some cases, it changed in a way that alleviated at least some of the time toxicity associated with cancer treatment. And so for us in Kingston, we did have patients who come for like two hours just to see us to say, oh, yeah, you can get treatment in a different place, for example. So they're wasting an inordinate amount of time driving. And with the kind of phone visits that we were able to do, in some cases, I would say, you know, we managed to provide at least close to the level of care from a cancer point of view while minimizing time toxicity, even within the existing framework that we have for drugs and how they're given. And so I think that's kind of the first step is, you know, knowing that, you know, no matter what drug we're doing, there is probably some flexibility that can be built into the health system to help minimize these time toxicities and at least make the experience better for the average patient. But that's going to be so variable from, you know, the health system in the States to Canada, to Sweden, to wherever, right? And um, those are just kind of my initial thoughts hearing that. That's right. a great point. Yeah, geotracking is a lot easier these days ever since we put that microchip in that COVID vaccine. <laughs> yeah, no comment on that one. Oh, okay, uh, no, we didn't. I, why don't you have the uh, the closing word on this? Where do you think we need to go as a community? Um, you know, I agree with that a lot. I agree that those are those are excellent points. I mean, yeah, I think. Um, you know, you you raised my opened this whole door in my mind of like the way we have you know somebody with who have breast cancer localized and it's treated and they're you know they're free of recurrence and we're making them drive in and that's a time toxicity to some degree a survivor time toxicity. Um, I'm also thinking about the drugs. I think you know, Chris, you know, you've done so much work on you know clinically meaningful benefits and, and getting into that. And actually, time toxicity is a nice way to build into that because I think one thing we'll all agree on is you can't approve a drug that it takes longer to administer the drug than the drug gives you in survival. Like that's a bare minimum. You know, we cannot approve these drugs. It takes more to administer than to give back. Um, and that might be a low bar, but then the next bar is, you know, what's the clinically meaningful benefit? And maybe those discussions, that's a nice place to put it in. But I think even thinking about it is the first step. If I were to encourage people listening to this podcast, I would say wherever you are, this is, this is the perfect research project for anybody. 
any cancer center, you can get uh, you know local IRB approval, do a retrospective review, and pick some disease that we haven't thought about, maybe AML, ALL, poor risk cytogenetics, or maybe bladder cancer, um, you know, and start to go through. You know, Avelumab has some benefit in Javelin 100, but how much of that is lost when you start factoring in all those visits? And what does the real world look like? How many visits do people get on average who are on Avelumab? You pick the setting, um, but start to calculate that. And the more papers we get, like that wonderful pancreas cancer patient, uh, pancreas time patient uh, let, uh, paper, uh, the better we will all be and more we'll know about this. So those are my thoughts. Um, Chris, last word? No, just uh, thanks, Adam, for doing the heavy lifting on this. It was a, a nice essay. As you said, we went through a lot of convolutions and a lot of discussions, but I think um, you know it certainly will inform. Uh, I've, I've had my eyes opened by this discussion and writing the essay, and I think it's going to become, especially you know, we're talking to patients in clinic about second, third, or fourth line therapies. I think I'll try to do a better job of being more explicit and at least acknowledging that you know, we've talked about the side effects that are going to come with this therapy, but we should also talk about the time trade-offs. And I think that's an important part uh, of, uh, you know, holistic, compassionate cancer care. Chris Booth, Adam Fenditis. The paper's out now, Jam Oncology. People check it out. Thanks for doing this. Thanks Thank for having me. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time. <laughs>